every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. I hope you had a great weekend. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Monday the 17th of April. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the latest batch of economic data from the US released Friday showed the US economy slowed in the final month of the first quarter with elevated inflation and borrowing costs restricting household spending and manufacturing activity. March retail sales slid by the most in four months and the drop in factory outputs was worse than expected. To add to the concerns, a new survey showed Americans expect inflation to pick up this year. Fed Governor Christopher Wallace said Friday that inflation is far above target and monetary policy needs to be tightened further, although he also said he was prepared to adjust his stance if needed if credit tightens more than expected. The Monetary Authority of Singapore unexpectedly kept its monetary policy unchanged on Friday. It was the first time the MAS has left policy on hold since April 2021. The MAS conducts monetary policy through exchange rate settings and said in its statement that its previous tightening moves were still working through the economy and should dampen inflation further. Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry said Friday that the country's GDP grew just 0.1% in the first quarter of 2023 year on year. That's lower than the previous period's growth of 2.1%. Compared to the previous quarter, the economy contracted by 0.7%. President Xi Jinping and Brazilian President Lula da Silva met in Beijing on Friday and vowed to work together to push back against what they said was a Washington-led containment effort in US foreign and trade policy. We work to expand trade and balance world geopolitics, Mr da Silva wrote on Twitter, and has used his trip to push for a greater role for China and Brazil in the global economic infrastructure. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. With a view from mainland China is Brock Silvers, CIO at Kyan Capital. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website. Just as a reminder, it's peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, the major equity indices fell Friday after Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller said that inflation remained stubbornly high and that monetary policy needed to be tightened further. The S&P 500 fell 0.2% Friday to 4,138, but it gained 0.8% for the week. The Dow dropped 143 points, or 0.4%, to 33,886. The Dow notched its fourth consecutive positive week, adding 1.2%. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite slid 0.4% Friday to 12,123. For the week, the Nasdaq ticked higher by a third of a percent, its fourth positive week in five. Banks dominated Friday's price action after the first batch of earnings reports, and along with energy stocks, they were the week's winners. Shares of JP Morgan soared 7.6%, its largest intraday gain since November 2020. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite gained 0.6% to close at 3,338. That's the highest close in more than 10 months. The benchmark index saw a weekly gain of a third of a percent. And Hong Kong stocks logged a winning week as mainland China funds bought big cap firms. The Hang Seng Index was up 94 
points. That's half a percent to 20,439. It also saw a weekly gain of half a percent. The tech index inched up by 0.1%, but was down 1.7% over the week. Funds from mainland China have bought about 12 billion US dollars of Hong Kong listed stocks over the past 10 successive weeks. Last week, the inflows were about 815 million US dollars. This morning, futures markets are pointing to a loss of about 0.4% for the Hang Seng at the open. Elsewhere in the markets, Treasury yields surged on Friday and the US dollar index hit a one-year low. Oil prices rose for the fourth straight week, whilst gold is close to a record high, just above $2,000. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's go and welcome our guests we have with us on this Monday morning. Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning to you, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And also with us is Louis Kois, who is Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Morning, Louis. Hi, Peter. Um, let's start in the US this morning. The latest batch of economic data from the US released Friday showed the US economy slowed in the final month of the first quarter. March retail sales slid by the most in four months, and the slide in factory output was worse than expected. And to add to the concerns, a new survey showed Americans expect inflation to pick up this year. However, the latest figures are consistent with a steady cooling of economic activity rather than a more significant slump that some investors had feared in light of the recent stresses in the banking sector. And following the data, the Atlanta Fed GDP now model estimate for real GDP growth in the first quarter of 2023 was revised up to 2.5% on Friday from 2.2% on April the 10th. Um, Alex and Louis, the big question on investors' minds at the moment is, are we going to see a recession uh, in the US this year? The Fed is now talking about a mild um, recession later on in the year. But are, is this latest data, we've seen quite a lot of it, haven't we, last week, uh, consistent with that? Well, I think maybe to start with the economy, Peter, um, you know, so March data was a little weak, but if we look at that tracker of the Atlanta Fed, which still suggests that on a quarter-on-quarter quarter basis we had another growth of 0.6%, it looks like the U.S. economy is not slowing down as much. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, inflation, if you look at core inflation and if you look at how core prices are moving month-on-month, that is not looking good. And that's why that Fed governor was also making that point. We're not really seeing a slowdown in inflation. And we we have to see inflation come down quite fast. Otherwise, it will become entrenched. So this is not a very pretty picture in terms of the interest rate that we expect. And we at S&P Global Ratings think that the market is a little bit too... Uh, to, to sanguine in terms of how quickly they think the, the, the policy interest rate will come down. And, and why is that core inflation rate so sticky? Is, is it because maybe um, inflation is, is now broadening out through, throughout the economy? Is that, is that the concern? I think at the very bottom of it, it's simply the labor market. They're, they're, it's still quite easy for workers to get good wage increases. If they don't get it at their current job, they move to another one. The labor market is very strong. And so that's what we see. At the end of the day, core inflation is very much about the labor market. Alex, we, we were talking last Monday, weren't we, about uh, whether or not uh, we're going to see a recession and how important that is for investors in the markets. What's, uh, what, what's your thoughts after this latest batch of data? 
I think first of all, uh, the data is just weakened in the in the month of March, so it is still too early to call for a sequence slowdown. And I think uh, for the market, actually, uh, the market is very resilient, and market actually is quite optimistic that the weights uh, would be pick soon. So that may be a little bit premature, but I think the momentum is strong. And um, very likely, I think uh, people would just uh, rotate within sectors. And, and on Friday, actually, the the market is a little bit weak, given the strong performance of uh, JP Morgan. So um, this is a little bit um, uh, a topic right now here. So, But the momentum actually is quite strong. It seems each day at the moment, the market switches between being risk on and, and risk off, risk on you see stocks rise, you see the um, you see the, uh, bond yields rise, and then it all reverses the next day. What what are investors confused about? I think first of all uh, they are rotating within sectors. Uh, on Friday, um, I think and and, and there is some renewed concern about the uh, government budget because uh, if you look at the sector performance. Uh, um, those um, military uh, companies actually uh, come down a lot because uh, they think uh, the government would probably may need to restrict the uh, spending on on those those budgets, and also we are seeing uh, weakness in healthcare as well. So uh, very likely, I think uh, the the market will just rotate within sectors, uh, and and it seems to me that uh, probably this sector rotation will still would remain the theme for for the rest of this year. Mm. And Louis, do you think the Fed is winning its battle against inflation? Is is it realistic for it to still keep pushing this two percent target when we seem to be so far away from it? Don't we? Well, Peter, are you suggesting we should move away from the 2% target? I mean, that, that would be a very big call. Like, mm. I think the Fed itself, if you ask them, they would say, no, we're not at all finished with this battle. Uh, please allow us to continue and don't doubt us when we say we need to do more work. At times, the market has doubted their, uh, their willingness, their, their, their determination to, to increase interest rates further. Um, it looks like the economy has continued to be stronger than expected, and that will that keeps the labour market tight, and that keeps also the inflation story unpleasant. But if this two percent target, which is a bit of an arbitrary target, isn't it? I'm never quite sure why it has to be two percent as opposed to one percent or three percent. But let's suppose you know that it, that is the target. If they're really serious about hitting that, then you know we've still got negative rates. They've got to carry on raising interest rates, haven't they? Yeah. So that's why th- there is still a large battle struggle outstanding you know the problem with it is not impossible to change your target but if you're under pressure that's not not, that's not a good time to change your target Mm -hmm. same with exchange rate you know people sometimes say why doesn't the hong kong monetary authority change its exchange rate regime you Mm -hmm. don't want to do that when you're under pressure you want to do it in very calm times Mm. And similarly in Japan, I suppose, we're seeing the same thing, aren't we, with uh, the, the new Bank of Japan governor doesn't want to change uh, the, uh, the, the, the yield curve control policy, even though there's an enormous amount of market pressure on him to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alex, how much um, can the markets cope with interest rates going up much further from here? We've already seen maybe one of the consequences of that um, in the banking sector. If, if these rates continue to rise... Are we going to see more damage to the market and more dislocations? Of course we would, because the market right now is expecting the weights to, to pick soon. So the expectations right now is um, we would see a uh, the, the Fed to raise one more um, time by 0.25%, and then that's it. So this is a probably general market expectation. So if things uh, goes worse, and, then probably there would be a quite, quite significant sell-down. 
But the, the markets are also projecting rate cuts at the end of this year, aren't they? I mean, they were yep. at one point they were talking about maybe seventy-five basis points of rate cuts. Now they're still pricing in maybe about forty basis points before the end of the year. Is that realistic? I think that it is very data dependent. So because probably right now people are expecting、uh, banks to tighten credit、uh, after the latest crisis. So、yeah. I think that probably is why the market price in a, a rate cut by the end of this year. I personally think that it is not realistic. If you look at the inflation story, it's hard to see them,、um, you know, starting to cut rates so soon after they have peaked. Looking、mm. at the inflation picture. Okay, let's talk a bit about the China economy. This is going to be an important week, isn't it? We've got a lot of data coming out tomorrow on activity in the economy, GDP, industrial production, retail sales. We did have some data last week, trade data、um, and inflation data, and also Yi Gang, the、uh, the head of the People's Bank of China. He was at these annual IMF and World Bank spring meetings in Washington.、Um, he said that、uh, the major source of global instability was rapid interest rate hikes and the recent bank failures. And he said,、uh, world, he attributed worldwide inflation in energy prices to geopolitical conflicts. Although he didn't mention the war in Ukraine as one of those conflicts, but he did criticise friendshoring. Adding strains on global supply chains. Friendshoring is this concept proposed by U.S. officials as a means to、um, basically do business with countries that share your values、um, and to insulate global supply chains from、uh, economic coercion and external disruption. How, how much is he、uh, is, is he right,、um, Louis? On this, do you think is he is he right to basically say、uh, the major problem is rising interest rates around the world? Well, if I compare it with with our with the analysis and views of our group, our economist group, like I would say, we broadly, you know, have a similar view. Like if you look globally, there are two main things going on. One is a growth rotation from the West to China this year,、mm. and the other is that interest rates are are high. They are probably they will get higher even further, and that's、uh, putting quite a bit of strain on on markets and currencies. Alex, this is another odd divergence, isn't it, between China and the U.S.? <laughs> um, yeah, um, I think,、uh, of course, right now, right now, China probably will have a stronger momentum of growth because、um, it has go through a lockdown and then reopen. And but I think、uh, the the latest figure would be quite important because of the momentum. Should be quite strong because we have seen、uh, the China pumping a lot of liquidity into the systems. So we need to see a, a much stronger performance. Actually, can the can the economy grow without all of that、uh, liquidity injection? We've seen a massive amount,、uh, particularly in March, didn't we? Yeah. So so that's why they need to see a stronger performance. I think the general. General feedback from from manufacturers are, are, are quite disappointing, so、uh, we、mm-hmm. need to see. And what about on the consumption side? Is there any sign that consumption、uh, is picking up and China's、um, achieving its goal of making it a bigger driver of the economy? I think, on a cyc- cyclical level, yes, there's definitely、uh, a good, very good momentum in consumption,、um, and you know, if you think about. Confidence, how that is、uh, playing a role. You can see that when the housing market returns, that's typically a sign that people are becoming more confident. At a more secular, structural level, I think that we're still very far away from、uh, from regaining momentum on that rebalancing towards a larger role for consumption.、Mm-hmm. And if you actually look at the government's plans,、uh, you know, for instance, these work reports that were released in March, 
to be honest, you see a lot of emphasis there on uh, very specific measures that are being, uh, that, you know, that are being announced on investment. We don't, we didn't see an awful lot of policy action on the consumption front. Mm. Mm. And what about the real estate market? Yi Gang was saying there were positive changes in the real estate market. Are you seeing that? Yeah, of course, uh, there are some changes because uh, the, the, the market actually has been in downturn for quite some time. So we are seeing some bit, some, a little bit of recovery. But I think uh, that would be limited to major cities only because uh, for those uh, second tier or third tier cities, I think the supply would be quite abundant and people know that uh, many developers are in this situation. So they probably need to dump their uh, infantries uh, later on, so I think uh, that's that's why um, the oversupply situation in in second or third tier cities actually would not be solved. Now, are you seeing signs of things stabilising in the uh, in the property market, both sales and prices, maybe? Yeah, exactly. Both both sales and prices. We have seen that bottoming out, and it came earlier than than everybody had expected. Nobody is expecting a V-shaped recovery, but it is actually quite helpful for the economy that the housing market has bottomed out because it broadens the, the recovery a bit in terms of where the demand drivers are coming from. And what did you make of that trade data um, last week? We saw particularly this surge in exports. They were up almost 15% um, from a year earlier, hit an eight-month high. People were expecting um, them to decline, maybe not as much as in the previous period. But this, this is a big surprise, isn't it? And it's hard to square with all this talk that we're hearing of a slowing global economy. It is very surprising. Um, it also distinguished China from its... Northeast Asian peers like South Korea and Taiwan, who saw exports continuing to weaken in March. That is in part because China is not as dependent on you know semiconductor and high tech exports as these other two economies. But it was a bit surprising. Some people say there was a supply element that after the uh, easing of restrictions, it was easier to get stuff out, get stuff to markets. I personally worry that this may not be sustainable for the rest of the year, given how weak global demand is. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, one of the things that stood out in the data was where these exports were um, increasing. Um, exports to the ASEAN countries, the Southeast Asian nations, soared over 35% year on year. However, exports to the United States fell by 7.7%. Is that is that really what explains it, that maybe these Southeast Asian economies are becoming, um, are actually doing pretty well compared to the rest of the world? And, and China's uh, exposure and trade with these countries is, is growing. Is, is that part of the explanation, maybe? It's part of the story. Uh, that has been part of the story for quite some time now. We see that the, the, the share of, the, of China's exports that are going to ASEAN, uh, has, that share has been rising steadily. In fact, if you put ASEAN as one market, it's now the largest, it's China largest, uh, China's largest market, larger than North America or Europe. Um, but it, you know, it's, if, the, if, if, if demand in, in, in the US and Europe will be weak this year, which is what many people expect, then it is hard to see these exports continuing at this pace. Alex, are you seeing signs of that? Is that maybe where, I mean, China has an official policy, really, doesn't it, of to try and develop um, trade and economic relations with the ASEAN countries. Is that where the growth is coming from in the world at the moment? Yes, I think so. Of course, uh, first of all, the demands from those countries probably may be strong. And also, I think uh, many manufacturers have diversified their manufacturing base. So they probably uh, move some to the, those ASEAN countries. So they probably may move some semi-finished product over there. 
to 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 do the final process, and then they can take the exemption from the from the tariff. So that's why I think we are seeing that kind of growth. And are some of these uh, exports then being re-exported to the US yeah, and, right. and Europe? Is is that what's happening there? So they are really disguised, if you like, US exports. Yeah, that's that's right. I think that's 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 what is happening. I think. Mm. Well, what about Singapore? Um, it kept its monetary policy unchanged on Friday. It conducts its monetary policy by adjusting the exchange rates rather than um, interest rates, and it said it's going to keep the band. Um, unchanged. That came because uh, Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry said Friday um, that the country's GDP grew just 0.1% in the first quarter of 2023. Uh, That's down from 2.1% the previous quarter. And if you compare it to the previous quarter, quarter on quarter, the economy actually contracted by 0.7%. Louis, Singapore is not, not an economy we talk about a lot, but nevertheless... Um, it's an important one, isn't it? Certainly in Southeast Asia. Um, anyway, what, what's your thoughts on the outlook there? Yeah, so Singapore faces the same type of inflation pressures as, say, the US, tight labor market, um, uh, lot of price pressure, but it is more exposed to the global cycle. So that's why we see it slow down much more. As you said, we had GDP shrinking on a sequential basis. So it, there is a bit more of a justification in Singapore to at least pause Mm-hmm. Uh, than in the US. But if you look at their core inflation uh, story, it is uh, it, that's still quite challenging too. So this may actually be more a pause rather than a you know uh, uh, an end to the tightening cycle as many people uh, portrayed. Mm-hmm. Alex, when, when you look at Singapore, is it a, an interesting um, economy and a market? Uh, I think uh, for Singapore markets, actually, um, it's... Um it is dominated by two sectors. First of all, it's banking sectors. Mm-hmm. It, it accounted for quite a lot uh, of weight uh, in the index. And another one is a C holdings, actually. Uh, one specific mm-hmm. company because it's too big. <laughs> so uh, when you invest in Singapore, you, you usually need to look at these two sectors. And then that's it. Because uh, for others, things actually probably too small to move the market. But I think uh, uh, um, it's a... The, the 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 one concern for Singapore is that the, the cost of operation or in Singapore actually is rising too fast. I think mm-hmm. so. That's I think uh, that is a little bit um, uh, the, of a problem for Singapore. And is that because there's been a lot of people relocating from elsewhere in Asia, including from Hong Kong? Yeah, right. And and also the um, the influx actually is too fast. I think uh, they they, need, they 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 do not have uh, too much capacity to expand uh, at, at, in, at, in the same time. Yeah. Mm. Well, the the other um, big economy in the region, in fact, the biggest um, economy in the region and also the country with the biggest population in the region is Indonesia. Um, Speaking on the sidelines of the IMF and World Bank spring meetings, Finance Minister Milani Indrawati said we're optimistic we can maintain growth around 5%. And uh, that matches the central bank's forecasts of about 4.5% to 5.3%. Uh, which it made last month. Indonesia's economy has been boosted by stronger domestic demand after it reduced or removed, completely removed COVID cur- uh, curbs um, at the end of last year. Um, Louis, this is a big economy, isn't it? It's one that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't ignore here. Um, and it seems things are going quite well. She was talking about uh, the finance minister uh, of keeping a budget deficit of no more than 3%, although they actually had a budget, budget surplus uh, at the end of March. What, what do you make of the Indonesian economy? I think Indonesia has a very nice emerging market. Uh, it, 
it has the government has done a decent job of pursuing some reforms, including reforms in sectors like logistics, which have shifted Indonesia from being a high inflation country to a moderate inflation country. So Indonesia mm -hmm. does not have an inflation problem, mm -hmm. uh, which is quite remarkable compared to where they were, say, 10 years ago. At the same time, they run a pretty sound macroeconomic policy, and they have that beautiful uh, windfall gain, if you want, from these exports of minerals, but mm. also of uh, actually adding the value to those minerals by forcing in sectors where they know that they have a very strong position, like lithium. They forced mm. they forced foreign companies to actually uh, process the minerals within the country rather than uh, exporting the minerals themselves. So all in all, this is a very nice story where we have seen a structural improvement on the current account position which is why Indonesia is not having a deficit. It's one of the few countries in the region mm. that is, is not suffering from terms of trade weakening. In fact, its terms of trade have uh, strengthened a little bit. It's a really nice economic story at the moment. And it's a good reform story, isn't it, yeah. as well? Yeah. Yeah. Alex, do you, do you find Indonesia's markets um, interesting? We've had a lot of IPOs, haven't we, this year, because mm. the government is, is selling off stakes in a lot of state-owned enterprises. So we've, uh, India is one of the hottest IPO markets this year. It's raised more than $2 billion in IPOs proceeds so far. So it's the fourth biggest market now globally, and it's on track to even overtake the U.S., IPO market this year in terms of equity fundraising. I mean, this is, um, is it a good story? I mean, it's a good story. Uh, I've, uh, the, the point is that the, 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 the population is huge, first mm. of all, and then it is young. I think that this is a, a very strong point uh, because right now we are looking at other markets, major markets, actually, they are old and, and a little bit um, maturing and, mm. and, 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 uh, uh, and, and the birth rate actually is, uh, is so low. So I think that's why uh, that probably may provide a very long-lasting cool story. And uh, from an investment perspective, is it a market that, you, that you're interested in, that you look at? Yeah, uh, I, 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 I'm not investing in, in it right now, but I think uh, it's worth study because uh, if you put so many SOE out, then that usually means uh, something on discount because uh, usually they would sell it... Uh, not really on valuation basis, I think. Mm. And um, not only on valuation, as I say. These IPOs are doing quite well. Harita Nickel, which listed last week, it's been the biggest one uh, of the year. It closed ten percent higher on the week. Seems to be a lot of demand for these uh, for these Indonesian IPOs. Yeah, first of all, uh, when governments sell things, that uh, they want to do it. <laughs> they want to they, they they want to complete the job. First of all, so the valuation usually is uh, is a little bit low. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me turn to the markets. Uh, here in Hong Kong, the big story last week was some of the world's biggest investors selling their stakes in large Chinese companies. Um, two of the leading financiers of China's private sector um, signaled their intentions to continue pulling back from investments here. European internet giant Prosus uh, has registered more than $4 billion of stock in Tencent uh, for sale. And SoftBank uh, looks prepared to hasten its exit uh, from Alibaba. We also saw Warren Buffett sell down his stake um, in automaker BYD. Alex, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? Oh, I think that those three sellers actually uh, have already well stated their intentions. So this is a, not a new story, but uh, they just uh, continue the execution. And for SoftBank, actually, the good thing is that they have uh, already done um, the, the 
the, the average sold uh, the mid majority part of the six. So that probably may not be a uh, continual pressure. And for posters, uh, the selling the process actually is quite slow. They uh, do it uh, at, at a very orderly way. And even more Bradford, they are, uh, he's not uh, in doing it in, in, in a very um, uh, rushed style. So I think uh, the market is a little bit overreacting. Uh, mm. Based on those news, uh, and but of course uh, right now the market probably was a little bit disappointed, and, and also um, I think that people are focusing more on the chip story in China right now because if you look at uh, last week uh, action, we are people are selling um, platform stocks, but uh, they are buying chip stocks, so mm. uh, that probably is the major reason behind the weakness in platforms. Mm. So do you think the overhang is gone now? I mean, people were worried that this was going to provide a big overhang on the local markets. Do you think that's out of the way now and in the news? Um, no, because uh, uh, the selling in Tencent or BYD actually will still take some time. So uh, probably they will still limit the upside in, in these two companies. Uh, but I think uh, people probably may shift their focus. So we are seeing uh, renewed interest in uh, in SOE, especially telecoms, and 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 also those are petroleum companies, and also uh, we are seeing uh, interest in in chip stocks. So uh, basically, this is a um, uh, polarization in the story in Hong Kong as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the 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 weaknesses mainly in those are platform companies, and the strength is in SOEs and also in those um, uh, chip stocks. Mm. Louis, obviously, the other thing that uh, investors are looking closely here is interest rates in the uh, in the US. Uh, it seems like uh, another 25 basis point rate hike is baked into the cake from for May. Um, anyway, what's the impact of of that over here? Yeah, so, you know, when interest rates in the U.S. go up, uh, we all feel the impact uh, largely by our currencies, uh, the, the, the external side, what it means for currencies, either do, do, do the local central banks feel the need to follow the Fed, at least in part, uh, if not, how much of a pressure that will generate on the exchange rate. It's interesting to hear Egang's uh, message in Washington, D.C., saying that we would prefer not to have to intervene in the market. Mm. Uh, and we haven't done an awful lot of that in recent years, which from the data is uh, what from the data that we have uh, it, uh, that 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 confirms that uh, that stands. And yeah, so it, it will depend a bit how central banks deal with this. Um, when the US rates move, unfortunately, we all feel it. Okay, Alex, final word to you on the mainland Shanghai Composite Index. What's it 10 month high now? Oh yeah, uh, because they are not affected by the weakness in those uh, major tech companies in Hong Kong. So uh, people are interested in those uh, SOEs, large SOEs, and I think uh, their interest probably will continue because I think uh, this year uh, SOE payment probably would, would still outperform. And I think China also interested in um, in raising the valuation in SOE and, and try to reduce the stakes uh, in, in, in some of them. So um, and also, I think uh, another part of gold story would be in those uh, man- high-end manufacturers or, or chip companies in China. So um, that probably would still continue to put it, uh, provide support. But uh, the old strong one like uh, Mao Tai, I think uh, probably um, may not be that strong. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. Good to hear your thoughts this Monday morning. That's Alex Wong, Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Louis Kois, who is Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. I'm joined now by Brock Silvers, who is Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. Good morning, Brock. 
Good morning. Um, I'm interested to get your thoughts, first of all, on, on what you think about these, uh, some of the world's biggest investors selling their stakes now in large Chinese companies. We've seen Warren Buffett reduce his stake in BYD um, uh, down to just over 10%. He was holding about 20% in August last year. Prosos um, is selling more stock in Tencent, and it looks like SoftBank is preparing to exit Alibaba altogether. What, why is this going on? What do you make of it? Well, look, last week we saw a number of, uh, I think, uh, apologists touting the internal factors behind the sell-offs. Um, you know, look, Process needs the money for buybacks. SoftBank needs the money for everything. Um, but the underlying facts remain indisputable. SoftBank is selling into the BABA rally. Process, which holds about a quarter of 10 cent shares, is continuing to liquidate. And Berkshire is selling down BYD. No matter what the reasons, these allocators are still revealing their outlooks. Now, for me, the, the Alibaba boomlet and the Lichang Charm Offensive, those are exit windows. It, it just seems a bit too concerted and manipulative to me. So let's stick to the facts. Um, there may be a respite, but regulatory risk remains as, as high as ever. The Chinese economy, the recovery is a mixed bag, I think, at best. The banking, LGFV, real estate markets, highly busted. Um, and U.S. central relations seem bad and still worsening. So we're seeing very large and sophisticated investors weighing the upside and the downside and then organizing their retreats. Um, to me, to dismiss this is, is would be foolhardy. It would be buying into the hype. So it's not just a coincidence then that all of these three big sophisticated investors are doing this at the same time? It would It would be an unbelievable coincidence, <laughs> one that I'm not buying. Mm. Um, I think there's there's real rationale there. And look, I, I think in order for either of us to take a stand against SoftBank process and Warren Buffett simultaneously, mm. <laughs> we'd have to we'd have to be pretty convicted. We'd have to have a high level of conviction. But why now, though? This is not a good time to be selling the shares, is it? I mean, um, Alibaba, it's, it's close to the lowest level since it was listed back in November 2019. They've rather missed the boat, haven't they? Um, look, in, in all of these cases, I think they could have managed this in a better manner in retrospect, but we are where we are. And, mm. you know, right now, um, I think we have had a bit of uh, a bit of rally in sentiment uh, in the last few weeks. And from my perspective, um, the rest of the year does not look so robust. So it, it may well be a good time to get out. Now, mm. there also may be non-market related reasons for wanting to raise capital. I don't doubt that SoftBank really needs the cash. Um, but but we still can't say that this says nothing about the China market. It definitely says something about the China market. Mm. It, the, the regulatory crackdown from Beijing is is supposedly coming to an end. Investors have been assuming that, and there's been signals from Beijing um, that, that, that that's the case. So shouldn't investors maybe have more confidence going forward, or are they worried maybe that there's just going to be more coming, more crackdowns coming? Yeah, I, I remain fairly unconvinced that the regulatory jihad has run its course. Um, I think it, that the economy has some issues that became a uh, a larger priority. So regulators had to turn away from some of their goals while they attempt to deal with other economic issues. 
But that doesn't mean that the regulatory goals have been dismissed. I think there's still a tremendous amount of regulatory risk in the market. Mm. And, and what about on the economy? Yi Gang, the head of People's Bank of China, he was in Washington uh, last week at the spring meetings of the IMF and World Bank. He was talking about China's economy stabilizing. He said um, he's seeing signs uh, that things are improving in the property market. He said he called them positive changes in the real estate market. He said China's financial sector remains resilient and risks are well under control. He was painting quite a rosy uh, picture of the Chinese economy ahead of all the data that we're going to see tomorrow, GDP, uh, retail sales, industrial production. Are you as optimistic as he is? Uh, Egon was certainly optimistic. To hear him tell it, you would think the economy is roaring. Now, he says we'll get to 5% growth this year, but he doesn't really mention growth growth quality or sustainability. Um, If we do see that growth, it's significantly due to government-directed, low ROI, infrastructure spending, and assorted subsidies, um, which is not a replicable process. Now, the real estate sector has rebounded a bit, but it was formerly the number one pillar of the economy, and that model is just gone and can't be reassembled. So it it seems to me that uh, behind all of that talk, all Beijing can really think to do is to cut the triple R and allow for more debt for LGFEs and developers. That's just kicking the can down the road, not solving the problem. Well, we did see, didn't we, from that credit data last week, a, a huge surge in, in March. In fact, March was the highest on record for total social financing or the highest for any March on, on record. It seems like the economy is being um, jet fueled by, by these liquidity injections. And as you say, maybe a lot of that is going into infrastructure spending. And I, I sort of struggle to see how building more roads and bridges at this stage anyway is going to really help China's economy. Uh, absolutely. I don't think anyone looks at China and says, gee, if, if we just had that one more airport, we'd be we'd be good. Um, <laughs> and despite all of that added credit, look, exports just came in unexpectedly strong. But that's almost certainly just COVID backlog speaking. China's CPI came in at 07 percent in March, down from one percent in February. That does not reflect a, a robust recovery by any means. Now, Let's not be overly negative. Um, China has seen some bounce back. And in my view, China is doing okay. But, you know, Egon gave us a lot of very happy talk when I think in reality, China is kind of muddling along and buying a bit of extra time before it's forced to deal with really unavoidable and significant balance sheet issues. Mm -hmm. And, um, if if you look at uh, the, the data that we're going to have tomorrow, a big part of that is going to be retail sales and the consumer. Where is the consumer fitting into the picture? I mean, China wants to get the consumer spending more. He wants to make the domestic economy and consumption a bigger part of the overall economy. Um, are they succeeding? Uh, so far, no. And we should insist on seeing the data before we before we take that view. Look, consumers in China have shown um, right now a very strong preference for added saving rather than added consumption. Mm. Um, And and that fits in well with historical data. And I think that's what we should assume going forward. Yes, China wants a more consumer driven economy. But is that realistic? I'm extremely doubtful, at least right now. 
So, so where do you fit in terms of your view on um, Chinese stocks and Chinese markets? And I should point out, you, you have historically been a very big investor um, in, in China, in, in, uh, in Chinese equities. But the last few months, you've been um, quite negative about it. Have you seen anything at all now to start changing your mind and making you think uh, that this is the time to reassess and to, to maybe relook at China stocks? No, but there, there, are, there are two different ways to look at this for me. Um, you can look at the normal economic data, and even if you convinced yourself that we've really hit a bottom and now is the time to buy, we still have this other view um, that focuses on kind of regulatory risk and fundamental investability, and that to me is very worrying. And I'm just not sure that I'm sufficiently comfortable on that second viewpoint in order to get me to take the first viewpoint seriously. So I just think that the, that the geopolitics, the larger macroeconomics, um, kind of the, the systemic issues, that should all be very scary for foreign, foreign investors looking at Chinese equity right now. Okay. One final thing I wanted to ask you about. We had Brazilian President de Lula um, in China uh, on uh, last week is is following a host of uh, of presidents who have been visiting Xi Jinping lately. Um, he was talking about a bigger role uh, for Brazil and China in the global economic infrastructure. He was talking about balancing world geopolitics, and he was also talking about um, emerging market currencies doing trade based on their own currencies rather in the U.S. dollar. Um, and he was decrying, really, uh, the role of the dollar in global trade. Now, obviously, that echoes something President Xi Jinping has been talking about. He wants to see a bigger role for the, for the renminbi. Where do you think we are on that? So are we a long way from it, or is this, something, is this a realistic goal? Look, China will definitely support those ideas from De Silva. There's no question. It really aligns with China's desire to see the RMB uh, further internationalized. Um, China and uh, China and related countries may find some interest in this idea, but the the fundamental reality is that there still isn't a great alternative to the U.S. dollar. And for China, the main issue is simply convertible convertibility. China's just uninterested in convertibility, and until it is, there's a limited market for RMB internationalization. Hmm. But the discussions between De Silva and Xi Jinping on this are, are, I think, an overlooked threat to the U.S. Without global dollarization, the U.S. can't live over its means with trillion-dollar deficits forever. Um, De-dollarization would end that ability. And now I think this is inevitable given enough time, but De Silva has really joined Beijing in calling for that day of reckoning. Mm. Um, and, And the U.S. should take that seriously. So presumably the day that China decides um, to make its currency convertible is also the day that we start to see a big decline in the use of the dollar. Yes, especially if the U.S. hasn't gotten more serious about about its uh, about its budgeting and its deficits, then absolutely. And, and why won't China um, make the currency convertible? Is it is it because it would lose control over the economy if it were to do so? It absolutely is a control issue. Look, this is an administration that, for better or for worse, um, is not committed to economics in the same way that it's committed to the control of society. Um, and, and, to, and to float the currency simply is not something I can imagine uh, the current administration doing. 
OK, Brock. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. Uh, that's Brock Silvers, who is Chief Investment Officer at Cayenne Capital. And thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning with another episode of Money Talk. You can find it on Substack, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and also on Spotify. For tomorrow's discussion, I'll be joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Sam Favre, who's the CEO at Mandarin Capital, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Have a good day. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.